0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 46 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you for listening and I hope this conversation inspires you to take deliberate action in your life. Tickets are now available for the School of Wellbeing live event in Melbourne Thursday the 18th of August. If you would love the opportunity to connect, share or learn with other big-hearted humans, this is the event for you. The night will include delicious food, heartwarming conversation, book giveaways and lots of laughs. You can book your tickets at openmindeducation.com forward slash events. Now on with today's show. In this episode, I have the privilege of chatting with Australia's leading employment lawyer, Josh Bernstein. Josh is a principal lawyer at Morris Blackburn, based in Melbourne. He is the national head of the firm's employment and industrial law department. Josh is a skilled advisor and litigator with extensive experience in employment contracts, sexual harassment, whistleblower claims, and workplace bullying. Josh is vigilant about the protection of his client's health and reputation. In this conversation, we discuss... What is workplace bullying? The obvious and subtle ways bullying can present at work, how workplace bullying can impact our mental health, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh Bernstein. Josh, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thanks, Meg. It's a pleasure to be able to chat with you.
0: This conversation, I hope, gives people a new language. A new understanding around a topic that a lot of us don't have a good handle on. Josh, how did you become a lawyer with a focus on the workplace and the way that we relate to each other?
1: I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was five because I was watching a very cheesy uh, American TV show called uh, Petricelli, which was about an unconventional lawyer who wore double denim and didn't pay parking fines. I asked my mum, what he did and she said he was a lawyer and I said what's a lawyer and she said someone who's paid to argue and I said I love arguing and I want to be a lawyer. So that's the first part of it. The second part is my parents were involved in the labour movement. My mum was a trade union official. My father was involved at one point in politics so I think it was their influence that sort of moved me towards acting for employees and trade unions They were very left-wing and I struggled when I was very young to understand Marxism and uh, left-wing theory. But there's one thing that always stuck with me and has never really left me since my young days as a five-year-old, I think it was, which was that they said uh, they taught me that I had to stick up for the underdog and bullying needed to be called out and people being picked on who couldn't look after themselves needed support and that's something that's always been very strong inside me and I still feel it probably far too much and viscerally because I'm supposed to be a clinical calm lawyer but when someone comes in and tells me a horror story sometimes I find that still very upsetting and confronting. Once I calm down then I work out how, how best am I going to help and support them.
0: It's so interesting to think that you had this spark for so long and that your parents, that context really shaped this passion for supporting people who were having a tough time.
1: Indeed, and it meant that I got into lots of debates and conflicts in the schoolyard when I intervened or, um, and I'm still doing it except someone's paying me, I'm privileged to be passionate about what I do and I love what I do
0: and it comes through in all your work. I was reading an article that you contributed to, and I had this real sense of someone who really cares deeply about the people that you're working with. So to give listeners an understanding, what is workplace bullying?
1: So the the law has got a really cool definition for it, but it's not, people still struggle with it. I think it's a fantastic definition, but it requires a little bit of explanation. It's defined as repeated unreasonable behaviour. That poses a risk to health and safety so there's got to be repetition it can't just be one incident it's got to be repeated conduct that is unreasonable now that's where context comes in because what's unreasonable is highly contextual and can be highly subtle um, as well and then the third part is it's got to pose a risk health and safety if something's repeated and unreasonable then often the risk to health and safety follows from the first two Um, but the the it's not well understood and maybe it's never possible to completely understand bullying because bullying can take so many different forms there's no formula there's some very obvious things we associate with bullying with screaming and yelling and you know very overt Forms of bullying behaviour, but it can be very, very subtle and Machiavellian. And to give you a really good example, if I I've I've got a team of let's say twenty people in my office in Melbourne, if I walk into the office on a Monday morning and say hello to everybody except one person, that person will notice that I didn't say hello to them, and I did say hello to everybody else. If I continue doing that. Probably by about Friday, that person was starting to feel pretty anxious. And if I continue doing it after that, that person's health will start to decline. Now, the the idea, what you often see when people are sceptical about workplace bullying, there'll, there'll be a headline that says, so unfriending on Facebook is now bullying, is it? People are snowflakes. However, when you dig into these situations, it's repeated conduct It's essentially anything that someone conceives of to be mean to someone else. So whatever the limits of that are, the limits of our our capacity to be mean to one another. So it can vary enormously. But if it's repeated and repeated and repeated, then it starts to really have a profound impact on our health.
0: And that is such a good example, that small move of not acknowledging someone not saying something, over time how that can make someone feel and then maybe feel like I don't want to come to work or I'm doing the wrong thing so that maybe they might overwork and how it can present in subtle ways and also obvious ways. So what's the difference between bullying and
1: harassment? There's not really a good answer to that question. In the law, harassment is used in the context of sexual harassment. So we know sexual harassment is unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. Bullying and harassment are sort of um, used interchangeably. There's no specific legal definition of harassment that's separate to to bullying or sexual harassment, but it could be a, I suppose, a, a subcategory of bullying where you've got very overt harassing behaviour, as opposed to subtle Machiavellian meanness. Perhaps the best way to think of it is very overt bullying behaviour.
0: So when we're talking about obvious behaviors what are some common obvious behaviors that you've seen over the years
1: I don't know whether it's obvious but one of the most <laughs> um, common behaviors that usually confirm to me that there's bullying going on is people setting up meetings with their target and canceling the meeting it's just bizarre it's a it's a, it's a thing and I don't know why but and it's repeated so it can be six meetings in a row a set up and then cancelled often at the last minute. And so the person keeps getting the message that the leader or the person who set up the meeting is too important, they're too busy, and they're not important enough to, to maintain a meeting for. So that's that's a strange one, but it's one that is often now for me a, a confirmation that, that's, that this is very likely a case of bullying. But your more classic stereotypes are yelling and berating and belittling, humiliating sort of behaviour. And is that common? Which one? The the yelling and screaming?
0: Yeah, because it's really interesting to think about. The environments in which I've worked in, I haven't witnessed that. I haven't seen that. But is it common in workplaces?
1: I think these days it's less common because it's less acceptable. So it's more common that you get the the more subtle forms of um, meanness which is why I think I'm seeing things like cancelling meetings as a a more common occurrence than overt yelling. There's often another thing, which is there may not be overt yelling, but there's certainly menacing, intimidating communication, usually away from everybody else. And so the only witness to it is the individual. And then the bully, in this case, will be very polite and apparently reasonable in front of everybody else but then on -on one-on-one communications, entirely different.
0: Yes, that is so interesting, Josh. And I'm thinking about a few examples I've been over time. I can see you thinking (laughs) about that. (laughs) I'm like, oh, wow, (laughs) I can see that. I never saw that before. And this is why we're having this conversation to give people a way to really frame their context and what's helpful, what's not, what's me, what's them. And I can think of a leader that I had that was wonderful to me, but then the stories I heard with somebody else, it sounded like a different person. Are you sure? Like is that possible because, you know, great with me, but what you're experiencing is very different. And so if people are in this situation, how can they start to unpick it? It sounds like a bit of a detective work needs to happen.
1: I suppose the question is do they need to unpick it? If you're having experience at work where Um, someone's not treating you well then you'll start to feel that in your bones if you're if you're feeling sick at the thought of going to work or feeling sick or fretting the thought of meeting with someone usually that's a sign something's going on and that's because there's been a history or a pattern of behavior which you find difficult to understand or to accept So a lot of the time people don't necessarily think of themselves as being bullied, but that's a a very good test is how are your anxiety levels going into a meeting with someone.
0: I can imagine people listening thinking, oh, there is a few people that I do get quite anxious about. And then maybe also listeners thinking about, gee, I cancel meetings all the time yeah like but I don't think about the consequences for the people that I'm cancelling the meetings on.
1: Yeah, everyone cancels meetings. It's whether you do it with one particular person in a way that's totally disproportionate. Mm. So you'll find in those cases I'm talking about, when Fred decides to bully Sally, Fred cancels Sally's meetings, but but continues to meet with others in a relatively normal way. This is about singling out behaviour, this is about treating someone differently and and meanly. Yes. It can be a conscious decision to do that um, and perhaps it can also be something that's unconscious as well.
0: Yes, I can see how that can happen. So when it comes to workplace bullying and harassment, what are some things that increase the risk factors in a workplace?
1: My first glib answer to that is, are there people working together in a workplace? (laughs) Because... Um, I've been asked this question a lot and, you know, what is what is uh, a high-risk workplace for, for bullying? One possible answer to that is command and control environments like the army, the police, air traffic control, ambulance services who report high levels of bullying. On the other hand, the public sector has always reported pretty strong pockets of bullying as well. I've given up trying to provide a a formulaic answer about what a typical bully looks like. In the end, I think the capacity to do it is within all of us.
0: Yes, that's so true. We all have that capacity and then thinking about... How am I impacting other people and is this a conscious thing or is it a deliberate thing or am I trying to get the job promotion so I'm just putting them someone else to the side? Like all these power dynamics that happen when humans are together within a system. Exactly. And how can we acknowledge a certain reality about the impact we're having on others, but then also what can we do to make the workplace safer generally for, who, yes. for other humans? like What can we do? What context allows people to reach out for help?
1: This is a very old-fashioned and in some ways unfashionable answer, but you need to have collective support often in workplaces. And- One of the things that's happened over the last 30 or 40 years is we've de-unionised workplaces. So uh, that means we're more often on our own in trying to navigate problems. And so we see a greater risk of abuses at work, whether that be the gig economy or underpayments. You can see what's going on in universities today in the newspaper, more massive underpayment claims. So there's a lot more abuses being publicised in the workplace. And I think one of the reasons is that uh, we've lost a collective democratic voice in the the workplace. That's one, uh, I think, obvious policy response we can take. Other than that, you always talk about education and policy and most companies and most workplaces have strong policies on bullying and bad behavior at work, but compliance is where it falls down. And I think the strongest form of compliance is having a group of employees who collectively can look out for one another.
0: Yes, having other people that can look out for us. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about all the places that I've been in that have policies. Mm -hmm. So they've got the policies and this is we're talking about workplaces, also talking about with students, like the policy is there. Always. It's it's been for 30 years. Yeah, it's there. But as you say, it's the compliance piece that seems a little bit fuzzy. So for people listening to this who may identify actually over the time or currently I am experiencing this, I don't feel comfortable going to HR in my school or in my organisation or actually
1: it's HR who are involved, a part of the problem. So what do we do? All right. So... I sit in a particular environment in a law firm helping people in these cases. However, lawyers like me are disgracefully expensive, which is why I say it's good to have a strong union presence in in a workplace. If you don't or that's not an option, then you do have to look at other options. If you don't have faith in HR, that cuts that option out. HR can be highly politicised in any organisation you, you get HR practitioners who are very committed and do what they can to ensure a strong, healthy culture. And then they get other HR practitioners who follow the, the culture that's already there and who who feel they are not able to uh, stand up when, for example, the bully or bullies are at the top of the, the pyramid. So HR can be very complicated. I, I get that entirely. A law was introduced Uh, by the Gillard government, must have been 2012, 2013, that allows people who are being bullied to go to the Fair Work Commission and seek an anti-bullying order. A lot of people who use that law are self-represented. I don't think that's ideal for all sorts of reasons because it's hard to to self-represent yourself when you're suffering the mental health harm uh, that's caused by bullying and then at the same time do a good job trying to represent yourself in in a tribunal but it's meant to be a user-friendly uh, environment where you can try and get quick access to help and a lot of the cases don't get to any trial they're sorted out uh, much earlier than that so that's that's the one uh, relatively new uh, option available to people who suffer from workplace bullying, which is to to go into the Fair Work Commission and seek an anti-bullying order. You may not get the order, but you might be able to get a settlement or some protocol which uh, addresses the problem.
0: So over the years, what have you noticed in the people that you've worked with for the impact on their health and their mental health as a result of workplace bullying?
1: My whole interest in this area, apart from the fact that my parents... um, uh, gave me a, a strong foundation in it. I had the experience of being, you know, a very passionate workplace lawyer and being able to take all sorts of cases for people. But with bullying for many years, the people that I saw were in a puddle in my office, were absolutely a mess. And up until about 2012, 2013, there were no really good options legally. I became very frustrated about that and started to campaign about a new law that so did others in the the workplace uh, space and ultimately the Gillard government introduced the new law. But workplace bullying is corrosive to mental health and the longer it goes on, the more harm it can do. For many years, people had the option of going on workers' compensation, even suing if they had catastrophic harm to their mental health. But... You could have a case in a court dealing with bullying that occurred eight years earlier. So it was a pretty hopeless, reactive situation. The Gillard laws, anti-bullying laws, allowed for early intervention. And I think that's the key as as much as possible. It's going to to harm your health wherever you are if if you experience it. The tougher people absorb it for longer, the ones that are particularly resilient, But even those that come and see me, I don't trust that underneath the exterior, um, a potential collapse of their health is not far away. If you absorb more punishment and more harmful behaviour, you'll hit a limit. And when when you hit that limit, because you've absorbed more, your, your fall could be more catastrophic. So it's bad for health at all levels. And the sooner it's addressed, the better.
0: Yes, that makes so much sense that the longer it goes on, that repetitive nature of it, the longer it just chips away at people and their sense of self and their sense of confidence in their workplace. And it sounds really corrosive to be in that kind of environment.
1: It's corrosive. And at the same time, what's very common is we don't want to admit that our workplace is becoming untenable, our job is becoming untenable. Our situation, you know, we spend more time at work than we do waking hours at home. Our identities are tied up with our work. Our dignity is is very strongly identified with our work. And when that starts to unravel, we don't want to necessarily confront and acknowledge that this is untenable. And so we develop survival techniques or we try and develop techniques to, to keep going so that's happening but all the while we're absorbing more punishment until something gives and um it sneaks up on people it sneaks up on people they te- they they're trying to rationalize the situation maybe it's me maybe i'm being too sensitive maybe this will get better if i do this what if i try that all the while health is actually being eroded
0: yes that is so true that we can get ourselves in these environments and we do try to rationalize it out to think that oh no it's just a high performing school or it's just yes. this or it's just this so I just need to step up I just need yes. to harden up I need to just get on and keep up with everybody else
1: Yes or I can I can see whether this approach works or change this about myself or some you know try and find some mechanism to reduce its impact or maybe I'll do more running or whatever it is. People try various ways to hang on and to tell themselves they'll be okay when in fact it's falling apart.
0: Yes, and I think there's also a narrative from the past around this loyalty to organisations. You've got to be loyal. You've got to stay there at least five years. You've got to have it on your resume. You can't just be seen to someone who just jumped ship just yes. after two years. Yes, but then being able to identify that maybe this context is not having a good in like it's not good for my mental health. That so right. how I feel in this context, it's probably not worth staying those five years just so it's on my CV.
1: Not if not if your health is compromised for years after that, no. So it's a difficult one because all of those things are very real, all of those attachments to to our job and our identity and our dignity. Are very important and at the same time we're in a in a position which often doesn't get better it often doesn't matter what you try with someone who's got it in for you most of the cases I deal with it doesn't matter what people do to try and ameliorate the situation the bully keeps going um, so
0: so how can we how can we discern between a bully And maybe like a clash of personalities (laughs) or a clash of values.
1: Because because I can not get on with someone and have different values to someone. This, This is the debate that goes on about bullying. It's in the same category as these people are snowflakes, not saying hello, can't be bullying, unfriending on Facebook, can't be bullying. It's a personality clash. It's a clash of values. These are all alternative realities. We can not get on with people, have a clash, have different values, but not be relentlessly mean to one another. I am on the left side of politics and I know a whole lot of people on the right who have different values and so on. doesn't mean I'm going to declare a fatwa against them and start mistreating them. So I think that issue about a clash of personalities and so on is often an attempt to excuse bad behaviour or to to belittle someone complaining. It all depends on is person A treating person B in a way that's unreasonable repeatedly, in a way that's unacceptable repeatedly. And if you come back to that test, it doesn't matter what their personalities are or what their values are. It's just a matter of human decency.
0: Yes I love that distinction because how often do you hear people saying oh they're just painful they're just hard work and that can be (laughs) you know you're just rationalizing to yourself your poor behavior or maybe their poor behavior like it it could be be. and it's interesting all of these different layers of stories so we've got our identity as I'm a hard worker I'm working hard I want to be in this organization I was so thrilled to get a job in this organization if that repeated bullying does occur it probably takes some time for us to catch up with the changing reality like this is not this this is not the job or the place or the school that I thought I was moving into it was the brand
1: that's a very wise observation because a lot of clients, Will say to me, "I love my job," but their job is now being includes now being tormented to such an extent that they feel sick going to their job every day. But but they'll tell me, "I love it, I love it." But for this situation, it would be a dream job. So
0: what we're talking about here is we love the job, we love the technical side of the job, but we're not in love with the context in which we
1: do it. But that is, and the context.
0: Also the job. It's everything. <laughs> yeah. It's everything, right.
1: So so this is how you see how our brains try and cope. That's it. I've done this, you've probably done this. We've all done it. Uh, to try and not admit actually it's turning to the proverbial. This is unsustainable, it can't go on. Now, unfortunately, often when it is unsustainable, it can't go go on. It's the person who is bullied who leaves. It doesn't always have to be the case, but in most situations that's that's the case i think as as our understanding of bullying grows and organizations are getting better at managing it that will start to improve but it's still a minority of cases where you can survive and and stay in the job stay sane
0: yeah i work with a lot of teachers and it's quite interesting to hear their stories of their context and yeah. their experience of being an educator because they can be such chalk and cheese like so polar opposite and yet they're both saying I'm a teacher and I know for me I walk into a lot of schools and a lot of organizations now and as soon as I walk in I get a bit of a feeling and I'm not sure what this feeling is but I just get a sense and then with in a few hours, I can start to see what's like the unwritten law, like what's the unwritten code of conduct, like who speaks, who's allowed to speak. Um, If it's a big group are people feeling really safe to share and put their hands up and have a laugh or I start to notice, I can see in their eyes they want to say something but they have a quick look around and then they they don't say anything. And it's something that I've also witnessed in classrooms as well. It's just the dynamics of humans and looping back to what you said from the start, it's possible anywhere where there's humans there's dynamics and this is something for us to really look out for and become more skilled at noticing it and maybe also supporting our colleagues if they're coming to us saying a manager or somebody else is saying xyz to believe them and be with them and listen to them and have that collective support
1: yes having support even just listening to a a colleague or friend is obviously really important and then trying to work out what to do about it is the hard part but at least having someone to listen to to bounce ideas off to get a sanity check am i imagining this am, am i doing something wrong all of those things i've done it i've done it so you know we all should do that from time to time when we're in difficult situations at work whether it's bullying or something else having yeah having support in that situation is critical cool. and then Having access to a good GP, highly recommended, and a psychologist once a week when when you're in the zone, very important.
0: So if I was to come to you feeling like I have a claim, that would be one of the first things you'd recommend?
1: When I started as a, a young, green, passionate industrial relations lawyer, mental health was a taboo. Now it's, as I say, a compulsory part of the first consult I have with anyone I see, because by the time I've worked out, by the time they book in to see me, their health is usually badly impacted. They're either anxious or much worse than that. So it's important whether I continue to act for them or not that they address that. Health is the most important thing probably um, for our longevity and quality of life, uh, quality of working life, quality of life generally. And it's also important if I work with someone that, um, they're able to make decisions about their case, about their situation um, in the best possible frame of mind. It's much easier for me to work with someone who's who's getting assistance, getting proper health support uh, so that we can communicate well and decisions can be made together. The process of assisting people in these situations can be very stressful. The legal system can be adversarial, um, expensive and re-traumatising. So, we try and run a trauma-informed approach to legal practice, and that means making sure that people have very good health support if they if they're pursuing a bullying case or a sexual harassment cases or anything else of that kind.
0: Oh, it makes me so happy to hear that you're doing a trauma-informed approach. You know that it's like that is so powerful, and maybe any listener that is feeling like they're in a situation that is untenable to go to a GP get that psychological support so they can help you get into that headspace where you can make a decision and a part of that decision might be permission to move to go to another workplace exactly
1: exactly that's that's really important what you just said um, giving yourself permission to look at all of the options about how you uh, address a difficult situation we've all been in these terrible situations when I've when I've had them I'll go and see a GP or a psychologist and get support. Um, I'll go and see colleagues, do a sanity check, go and see a barrister who's a friend who hear me out. And all those things are really important to do. But um, when I first started doing this work, I just ran into the issue of mental health over and over again. And it became necessary to recast the way in which I approached the law and litigation and then Restructure the way my whole practice does it. Um, Not only were we dealing with people who were traumatised each day, and not only does that pose difficulties for them and uh, in an adversarial legal system, but it also impacts us. What we what we discovered was something called vicarious trauma, and no one knew what that was. And so we had, and then we had to go and get trained about it and start to look after ourselves better because. If you're dealing, if you've got a bit of a bleeding heart like I do and some others in my team do, most of others in our, in our team do, that's why we go into this sort of area, then it's a bit of a risk for you to be dealing with people who are very traumatised over and over and over. You've got to be careful about being having empathy but also having proper boundaries and recognising what your role and expertise is and what you can't do or else you'll end up having very poor mental health yourself so the whole practice has has been through a revolution to to uh both ensure that we assist people in these terrible situations in the best way possible but also that we stay sane and calm and good lawyers as well
0: oh that is so wonderful josh and what you're saying resonates so deeply and for so many listeners, we're big-hearted humans, we're teachers, we're parents, we're school yes. leaders, we're here to care and also a part of caring is having that boundary of caring for self too so we can show up and make yes. good decisions and not get into the situation ourselves. We're yes. looking at it, we've got a wider perspective, we don't get into that drama cycle.
1: Yes, we're not trained to be therapists, all of us. There's a lot of terrible trauma out there and you don't want to get lost in that and then stop being able to perform your role effectively and assist people. So, And that's still an ongoing process for, for us of education and retraining and experimentation of different things because there's no formulaic response to, to prevent vicarious trauma. Either. So it's something that we are constantly looking at and tweaking and experimenting with.
0: Oh, Josh, you have given us so much to think about. And I have absolutely loved this conversation because it's given me a point of reference now to what really is workplace bullying and also. What can people do if they're experiencing it? And then also for listeners to manage that gap between what we expected our workplace to be, maybe when you were applying, when you saw the brochure, when you see that versus what is my current reality
1: Yeah.
0: and how is it impacting me? At the end of the day, how is it impacting my health? How is it impacting my relationships? How is it impacting my job satisfaction, and just be with that reality. And then from that reality, there might be some choices that you need to make and some permission giving along the way. So to wrap up this wonderful conversation, Josh, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready?
1: I'll try and be ready, as ready <laughs> as I ever will be.
0: Okay. I am inspired by?
1: Working with good, committed, talented people.
0: When life feels hard?
1: I go for a surf. <laughs> surfing, surfing is my outlet. It's where it's about as zen as I'll ever get. Love out that. Out on a surfboard, floating on the waves.
0: An underrated skill is
1: laughter. <laughs> <laughs> really important to to be able to laugh and to laugh with other people. It's um, incredibly important in my life.
0: And I am looking forward to
1: a holiday and being able to travel overseas again, particularly to France, where my I have some friends and family.
0: Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Josh, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I hope this conversation has really got you thinking about the way you are treated and the way you treat others in the workplace. If you're experiencing workplace bullying, please seek support from your GP or call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 to talk to someone. Or you can learn more about workplace bullying at the website headsup.org.au. Before you go, I invite you to complete two sentences. Number one, from this conversation, I want to remember. And number two, the action I'm going to take in the next 24 hours to support my well-being is, please share this episode with anyone in your life that would benefit from hearing this conversation. To learn how I can help you thrive, visit openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event or make an inquiry about my game-changing wellbeing program, Thrive by Design. Join my weekly newsletter to get all the details about upcoming events and to get access to my regular book giveaways. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 46. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.